is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Obama says no boots on the ground. His military chief says don't bet on that. Islamic State, is it really a regional problem? Ebola, why the military is going in. And who wants to sit at the Fuhrer's desk? Probably the most evil man the world has ever produced sat behind that desk. Um, I mean, there's part of me thinks, you know, well, it, somebody should have put a chainsaw through it by now. Take The U.S. House of Representatives has approved President Obama's plan to train and arm the moderate Syrian opposition taking on Islamic State. The endorsement came after the president repeated that he wouldn't be committing American combat troops to ground operations in Iraq. Here he is speaking to troops at a military base in Florida. As your commander-in-chief, I will not commit you and the rest of our armed forces to fighting another ground war in Iraq. After a decade of massive ground deployments... It is more effective to use our unique capabilities in support of partners on the ground so they can secure their own country's futures. His comments come a day after Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of General Staff, Staff General Martin Dempsey, said he would recommend ground troops if the airstrikes failed. My view at this point is that this coalition is the appropriate way forward. I believe that will prove true. But if it fails to be true, and if there are threats to the United States, then I, of course, would go back to the president and make a recommendation that may include the use of U.S. military ground forces. Well, I'm joined by Michael Stathis, who is Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah, and, as usual, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, First of all, Michael Stathis, what exactly is going on? You get one message from the president, another from his top general. Well, there's there's been a little bit of a disagreement on uh, strategy, shall we say, uh, from uh, Obama's first day in office. Um, he is adamant, the president is adamant that there, we are not going to have a repeat of 2003. Uh, and he's going to do just about everything he can to, uh, to make sure that things uh, work out in a way where this operation in Iraq does not become uh, a, a quagmire. Mm. Christopher, is it wishful thinking? Um, let's put this in some perspective. General Dempsey was appearing before uh, a, a congressional committee. He read this. He didn't say it in answer to a question. He read it from a prepared statement that if the airstrikes failed, then he would have to recommend. Now, the protocol in the Senate is that if you're reading from a prepared statement... That's what you believe. That's almost policy, and that's the difference. So what do we read into that exactly, then, if the President's saying the opposite? Well, the fact that Michael Hayden, who uh, uh, was, was, was really running the President's mind some time ago, uh, said this week, uh, just after lunch, actually, reliance on air power against ISIS has all the attraction of casual sex. Uh, in other words... <laughs> good, good lunch that was, then, I it presume. Was a wonderful lunch. Um, but, the, but the importance of that, I mean, apart from the, you know, it, it sounds funny, the importance of that is that, um, as, as Michael says, President Obama from day one has, not, has wanted to get troops out and mm. not in. And that is very important. And we're coming up to the election year, and he's got to remember all sorts of rules that go with that. There is quite simply the case that you cannot do the job that he hopes to do without boots on the ground. Now, what those boots do 
and what sort of boots they are is another matter yeah. for discussion. But, but Michael Stathis, um, Iraq's Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, says foreign ground troops would be out of the question. Well, uh, you, you know, everyone has a political statement to make, and uh, uh, I think Obama's comments can be made in, uh, in that context uh, uh, as well. But uh, there are certain realities. Even uh, the president of Iran, uh, Rouhani, uh, has uh, indicated that uh, a, a simple air campaign is, in his word, ridiculous. Uh, it's just not going to get the job done. And he actually accused the United States of being a little bit afraid of, uh, of casualties. Uh, but the casualties that I think Obama is uh, hoping to avoid are not just military. They're political. Christopher, go on. I'm just thinking about these airstrikes. There have been 167, about 170 since this air uh, campaign of the Americans started on 8th of August. 160. If you look where they've taken place, 96, 97 of them have taken place in the area around the Mosul Dam. Uh, the next biggest figure is probably Erbil and then Mount Sinjar. All those targets have been in support of either the Peshmerga or more recently, uh, when there was a strike near Baghdad, uh, with the Iraqi forces. That's the boots on the ground that President uh, Obama wants to uh, encourage the local people. And is it enough? Is it enough? Because the military obviously don't think it is, the American military. The American military say that you, can't, you, that you can disrupt, you can disperse, as they did around the Mosul Dam. I mean, 96 airstrikes is quite a lot. You can push them back, but you can't keep them back. Any, it, it comes under the, you know, the principle of uh, a staff college. Any damn fool can take a hill. The difficulty is actually hanging on to it. And this is what we're talking about here, and that is that General Dempsey sees the, the military reality of it. When, if President Obama said to him, we want to clear them out of Iraq, can we do it? Dempsey can say yes, because... In, in spite of the publicity and um, the way things are written up about ISIL, for example, it is not, it is not a huge and sophisticated force. It's, it's good, it's big, but it's not that. You can put a military force against it, but then when you do that, you're stuck because you've got to stay there. Michael Stathis, how are these differing uh, assertions being received in America? Well... And this is part of Obama's problem as well. On the one hand, he wants to be involved. He wants to be able to carry out the air campaign. Any talk of a uh, a ground uh, incursion uh, is, is, is going to cause a great deal of uh, doubt and problem in the minds of the American people. Uh, they do not want uh, another Iraq war. Uh, and so... Obama's got to play this very carefully. On the one hand, uh, uh, do what can be done, uh, but also play the political game. Um, now, the military is not uh, quite so concerned with uh, political realities, uh, and uh, I, I think that's why certain military leaders are unabashed in saying, no, uh, something on the ground is going to have to happen ev eventually. Uh, Obama may be convinced of that uh, uh, deep down, but he's not going to say it publicly, certainly not at this stage. Mm. Christopher, lots of international talks this week on the IS issue, Islamic State issue. Wh who has been talking to whom? Well, they started on Monday <clears throat> when the French said, look, let's have, a, let's have a meeting about this. And they brought uh, lots of characters in from, from, from different countries at foreign minister level. Um, the French are quite bullish on this, and they say, yeah, we're all for airstrikes, certainly over Iraq. But the biggest uh, talking really starts next week, and it starts next week at the General Assembly of the United Nations. And the importance of that <clears throat> is that the Americans are leading on this. 
don't forget that on the on the Security Council, you've got Russia. And Russia, who is uh, sort of the bad boy of uh, the Security Council at the moment, is going to have to be brought into this. They're going to have to be brought into it because you need, uh, in, in many ways, you need Russia as part of the guarantor if you get any, any way towards a success story in, in the Middle East. So you're going to have 40 nations, 40 nations talking about it, but 40 nations are going to put up and say, well, this is the bit that we'll be able to do. And think what's happened in Australia just this, this week. And that is the Australians have said, look, we've arrested people. We're because coming we to thought, that in a moment, yeah, we, yes. But, but we thought of, uh, that there might be a strike against us. That's the extent of the uh, coalition of the willing that has got to take place as far as Obama is concerned next week at the United Nations. What's the chances of him uh, getting this coalition of the willing together, Michael Stathis? Uh, so far... Um countries, especially key countries, have been fairly reluctant. Uh, by that I mean uh, countries uh, in the area. And that is very disappointing. The, uh, the country that I think is really the key uh, to defeating uh, ISIS or ISIL, depending on uh, which, which term you wish, uh, is uh, the Republic of Turkey. And uh, uh, Turkey seems to be far more concerned about the future of uh, uh, the Kurds in Iraq than the immediate defeat of, uh, of ISIS. What and can that Turkey is very do, Michael? Excuse me? What, what, what can Turkey do exactly? Uh, they, I think they can make the border a lot tighter. Uh, and uh, uh, there are reports that uh, uh, large numbers of recruits uh, have been coming out of southern Turkey. Uh, but uh, that, that border area uh, between Turkey and Iraq seems to be very, very porous right now. Turkey has the largest military in the area and one of the most sophisticated. Uh, if if uh, the defeat of ISIS uh, became a uh, security concern for uh, for Ankara, uh, I think this thing would uh, would come to an end uh, in a relatively short period of time. But right now, uh, they seem reticent to really get involved, and mm. that I think is a major problem for Obama. You've got uh, Turkey, Turkey's opposition people, the PKK, the, the, who are the Kurdish uh, opposition. Uh, they are actually in there trying to fight ISIS at the moment. Turkey has yes. also got to provide uh, forward basing facilities, certainly for the Americans and perhaps even for the United Kingdom and, and the British Air, uh, Air Force. Uh, Saudi Arabia has got to be uh, heavily mm. involved. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni. Uh, kingdom, a Sunni-led kingdom, and this is a fight against the wrong sort of Sunnis, if you like. They've got a lot to lose mm. about this. The the Gaharis, they've got to get involved, and they've got to get involved by backing the right people, let's say, in the war in, in Syria. The big question is, what do you do about Iran? Iran is Shia, and they want to take on we, ISIL. Gentlemen, we shall come back to this next week, I'm sure. Michael Stather, for the moment, though, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Police in Australia have carried out the country's largest ever anti-terror raids. They were sparked by intelligence and Islamic extremists were planning random killings in Australia, reportedly including a public beheading. It's the first time Australia's threat level has moved from medium to high. The country has recently committed 600 troops to fight against Islamic State. Uh, Christopher... What do you make of this? Well, first and foremost, it shows that this is not just a regional thing um, for the Middle East to worry about. It's not just a thing that the United Kingdom worries about because it's had an attack, or certainly America because of 9-11, etc. It shows you how governments right across the region... And don't forget, if you're an Australian and you're sitting in Canberra in government, you don't look at Europe, you don't look at the Middle East, you look 
at Southeast Asia, and where is the biggest uh, biggest contingent of, of 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 Muslims in the whole world? It's in Indonesia. It's mm. not in, in in the Middle East. The other other thing is the Australians talked to them, and they are they were really really flabbergasted, uh, shocked by the executions. Mm. Quite so, and they say, but this is something that's gone on for. a a, th- a thousand years. They understand that, and they believe that it could happen in their own uh, well, in their own country. Uh, IS Islamic State becoming known for this shocking level of bloodletting and the cruelty. But can its savagery be explained? Let's talk to Fawaz Jajaz, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics, about this. Uh, good to speak to you today, Fawaz. Um, why is this group proving to be so savage? Why is it using these techniques? Well, I mean, um, from the outside. It seems to be very irrational, uh, very foolish, uh, very uncivilized, which is altogether. But I think from the perspective of the so-called Islamic State and the top leadership, this is a rational choice. Uh, It's very rational. The use of savagery, uh, beheading, stoning, uh, massacres, burying people alive. It's part of a conscious decision on the part of leadership to terrorize uh, the enemies of the so-called Islamic State and to basically co-opt recruits worldwide. I mean, the message that the so-called Islamic State is sending to Australian uh, deluded young man and British deluded young man is that mm. come and join the caravan of jihad. We are winning. Uh, we are a winning horse. Uh, we could deliver on the battlefield. Um, unlike Al-Qaeda uh, leadership that's hiding in the valleys and wadis of Afghanistan and Pakistan, we are basically battling the enemies of Islam, in particular the Shiites and the minorities, uh, including... Yeah, you, you say that they're keen to differentiate themselves from al-Qaeda. Can you explain the difference in well, the way... Well, you, you know, Kate, there, there are multiple differences. I know uh, the threat uh, to the West has received a great deal of publicity in the last few months, and legitimately so. But the key target... Uh, the so-called, I call it the so-called Islamic State, because it's neither Islamic nor uh, really a state in the real sense of the word, uh, the key target uh, is basically the near enemy, not the far enemy, Uh, not the United States of America, not the United Kingdom, not France. That is, um, it's it's basically, it has been battling Mm. sectarian-based regimes in Iraq and Syria, and it has visceral hatred uh, the Shia. Brief, uh, briefly, Fawaz, um, today 100 leading British Muslims have signed an open letter to Islamic State calling on them to release this aid worker, Alan Henning, and he's under threat of being killed in a similar way to those who have been beheaded before. Um, is that going to make any difference? Presumably not. Whatsoever. None whatsoever. I mean, you're talking about really a different beast. Uh, a beast that feeds on blood and violence and Uh, Basically because, in fact, the letter itself, they would dismiss the letter as part of the people have sold their souls to the devil. That's how bad it is. My take on it is that the war has been joined and it's all all out war now. Not just between the near enemy and the so-called Islamic State. Um, It it, it is bad and it's going to get much worse in the next few weeks, the next few months. All right, Fawaz Jajaz, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, why Hitler's desk is on display at a military museum in Dorset.
America is sending 3,000 troops to fight Ebola in West Africa. Today, the UN Security Council is holding an emergency meeting to discuss the epidemic. It's expected to pass a resolution demanding a more forceful international response to the crisis, urging member countries to provide medical staff and field hospitals. Britain's Department for International Development said it would set up a 62-bed medical treatment centre in Sierra Leone. To what extent Britain's military will become involved is still unclear. I'm joined now by Hamish de Breton Gordon, a former British Army chemical weapons officer and founder of Secure Bio Limited, which is a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear security firm. Good to speak to you, Hamish, today. And the kind of language that's being used about this epidemic now is that it's a war and the disease is an enemy. Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's incredibly worrying, and um, the, the the disease itself is growing out of all normal norms. I mean, it should have died out um, many many months ago, and keeps on rising. And I think then that there is now a real concern that uh, as it spread throughout most of West Africa and to other places, uh, the thought that it um, you know coming to the UK or Europe or, or the US uh, and uh, having a situation a bit like the film Outbreak it is pretty horrific. And I agree, I think now is the time for demonstrative action. And some of the things that needed are, are going to be pretty difficult and hard. And actually, you know, the military who are trained to operate in contaminated environments are probably a really good option. And it is probably, a, you know, it probably needs to be approached now as a sort of biological weapon and um, what we would do for that. So it seems very sensible to try and, uh, use the military in this particular case. So you, you talk about treating it as though it were a, a biological weapon. What should the US military's plan be? Well, I think they obviously will be supporting the health agents who are dealing with this, but um, it strikes me one of the key things that, that needs to be done is containment. Um, this disease is is spreading uh, for, for a number of reasons, um, you know, various customs are not helping it, uh, and the fact that people move around much more easily than they used to, um, and it is spread predominantly through, it's a hemorrhagic fever, it spreads predominantly through blood and, uh, and other human secretions. Um, it doesn't spread by the air or anything like that. So if you can contain people who have the virus, then in theory you stop it from moving around. But we've seen some horrific pictures coming out of Liberia in particular where people infected are, are sort of escaping from clinics and running around the place. And, and the actual cold, hard, fast fact is that has got to be prevented and how at all costs. And how big is the risk of sending 3,000 healthy troops in there from America who presumably will go home? Well, I mean, in theory, if they follow all the right protocols and, and rules, they'll have all the equipment, that there should be very little risk. And uh, But of course, in these, these dangerous situations, you have to um, you know, look at the risks and benefits. And, you know, in, in this case, I'm sure the Americans have decided there is no other option. But if those troops follow the right protocols, have the right protective equipment, they should not become casualties. Christopher, um, in living memory, has there been anything like this before? Yeah, I mean, what you have to accept is that the military is used to um, uh, fighting and living and surviving in, in terrible conditions like this. I mean, in, for example, in Africa, the Boer War, which I know is 100 years away, but um, more soldiers died from disease than they did from wounds, for example. And so there is a sort of sense that they're used to living in the environment. But I think at the moment, more importantly... What we're seeing is the most remarkable scare 
that you do get with even the suggestion of, say, uh, CW, chemical warfare, uh, biological warfare, or anything like this. You've got three West African improving nations, and they are frozen into their normal social and commercial life. Now, that is actually taking a big chunk of the continent with, say, more than 2,500 dead thus far. And you see what the consequences of just thinking that it may get worse. In certain ways, the military is the proper organisation, it has the proper wiring diagram Mm. to go and take charge and say, right, this is how we do it. Hamish, um, Obama, President Obama was saying that this is potentially a huge threat to global security. How would it threaten global security exactly? Well, I I think in a number of ways, um, you know, after Syria, uh, Iraq and the Islamic State and potentially what's happening in in Ukraine, this is this is the third of the really big global threats at the moment. Um, It'll it the the potential of the disease spreading outside the the vicinity of West Africa at the moment, um, I think will create, you know, the, the horror uh, of a biological weapon, and and that could lead to destabilisation. I mean, I do. I, you know, I'd like to point out that you know, even even if um, the disease came to the United Kingdom, the sophisticated medical setup here and the protocols that would be in place would make it virtually impossible for it to take hold. The challenge is that in West Africa, those sort of things just do not exist, and potentially in other countries in the world and you now have you know there there are some pretty cold hard decisions that are going to have to be made which you know is is the nightmare scenario um you know as it as in the film outbreak you know if if people break cordons and potentially take the disease and infect other people somebody is going to have to make the decision what to do with them so that that's where i think you know the 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 military come in uh, uh, and as the the defense correspondent has said you know the military are well-placed to do this sort of thing, and it, we really can't afford for it to spread any further than it is at the moment because that will have a huge global impact uh, way beyond Africa. And, and Hamish, has Britain, particularly the military, any particular expertise or past experience it can draw on in this? Well, cer- certainly the fact that everybody is equipped with protective equipment and, uh, and does some training in it. Of course, the field hospitals that we've heard of, certainly the military field hospitals will be um, well, well used to that. Um, Health Protection England have already deployed some mobile laboratories to do the analysis, and again, that is something that the, the military might not actually have the capability in the stores, if you like, but could very quickly um, ramp it up. But it's more people who can operate in this really harsh terrain and environment and not become casualties themselves. I think that is the key thing that the military bring to this disaster. Hamish de Breton Gordon, thank you for your time. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Regimental museums around the UK are invaluable to historians and the nation as a whole, charting as they do the history of regiments past and present. And sometimes you can find extraordinary objects within them. Tim Cooper visited the Keep Military Museum in Dorchester to look at one very unusual object. Well, in amongst the wonderful exhibits here at the museum is a desk, and it doesn't look very special in particular. It's the sort of thing you could see in any 20s, 30s, 40s office anywhere in Europe, really. Um, Dark wood, uh, a centre area where you can get your legs under cupboards 
either side of that, quite a scratched and uh, scuffed top. Um, but it's here in the museum, it's surrounded by a protective screen. Uh, Chris Copson, curator of the museum here, explained to me why this desk is, well, so very important and so very divisive, I suppose, in some ways. Well, cutting to the chase, this is Adolf Hitler's desk. Um, the story is that um, a battalion of the Devon Regiment, who were in Berlin in 1945, acquired it. Now, obviously, the Russians were there first. The Red Army kicked its way into Berlin. And um, the story is that they um, acquired it by various dubious means. They swapped a large quantity of cigarettes uh, for the desk. Um, they then took it to their battalion uh, office, stayed there for a bit, and then eventually it came here. It's quite an extraordinary thing to find in a museum in the middle of Dorset. It's, it's a bit mind-blowing, the idea of who sat behind this thing. Because, as you said, you know, it's not really very prepossessing. It is just a big, plain, oak desk. Um, to add a bit of substance to you know, the idea that this is Hitler's desk, it had a quantity of his correspondence inside. And it's got things like blank-headed uh, paper. And uh, as you can see at the back there, framed up, we've actually got one of his Christmas cards with his signature on it. Now, the idea of Adolf Hitler sending Christmas cards is one that slightly blows my mind. I don't know about you, but... It's surreal, isn't it? It's just deeply surreal. It is very, very strange indeed. There it is, uh, in German, uh, best wishes for Christmas and, uh, and, and the New Year, with that evil little squiggle underneath. That's the man's signature. What, from your point of view as a curator, what is the historic significance of this? So, and what are your feelings about it as an item? I'm a bit ambivalent about it because when you think about it, I mean the most probably the most evil man the world has ever produced sat behind that desk um i mean there's part of me that thinks you know well it, somebody should have put a chainsaw through it by now taken it away and burned it um but on the other hand it is a big lump of history there's no doubt about it next year Obviously, it's, it's the 70th anniversary of the fall of Berlin. And I think we will start to draw, um, draw it out into the public eye a little bit. Um, the only thing is, I mean, we don't want to glorify the Nazis or anything like that. I think the achievement of the Red Army in defeating Nazi Germany is, is what we'll be pointing out. And we'll be using this relic of the fall of Berlin to illustrate that. That's a very good point, isn't it? Because it was only through the Red Army getting to Berlin that this was freed, if you want, from, from that Nazi tyranny that existed there, and that's the way to look at it now. But I, I totally agree with you, Chris. I find it a very strange object to be around, a powerful object, but imbued with some form of, well, evil, because, as you say, Hitler is one of the most evil men to have existed, and he may well have signed off on some of the most evil acts in history at this very desk. A very strange thing. Thank you for talking to us about it. And this is uh, Tim Cooper reporting for SITREP from Dorchester. It's quite interesting, isn't it, the kind of things that people like to collect and keep for posterity, isn't it? Yeah, I tell you what, there's a guy called Mike Critchley who runs the thing called Warship World. He went to an auction, uh, a military auction, and he came away and discovered he, he bought a submarine. <laughs> And how, not do you, only how, did, how do you discover well, he was you bidding, bought a... Well, he was, he was bidding for something, and he, he, wanted to, he wanted somebody else to buy it, right? And so he kept pushing the bid up, 
and then suddenly it stopped and he, he, he was landed with a submarine and he found he'd also got a light ship. <laughs> I have got a, I've got a wooden leg from a French sailor at the oh, Battle of Trafalgar. I don't believe you. It is true. I need to see this to believe it. I also it. got the bell of my old ship, HMS Amazon. So How much did you pay for the wooden leg? £85. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm, I mean, good. It was. It's very small. But, I mean, I'm sure. Fr- I mean, I Frenchmen at the Battle of Trafalgar were very small, and it's as simple as that. But what it's can in I my say? Study I will not moment. be repeating this to my other half. Um, Christopher, around this week, what else? I tell you what. Everybody's talking about in, in the UK anyway about the. Uh, referendum for Scottish independence. Which, of course, for legal reasons, we can't we, speak we about really today. I tell you, I think the most fascinating story I've seen, the Chinese have put in a large battalion, 700 special forces, into South Sudan. Chinese. Why South would that Sudan. Be? In theory, to join a United Nations force, but they brought them into where the Chinese have big investments in the oil fields. And they are there to protect the oil fields. Now, if that isn't power projection, if that isn't something quite scary that's going on at the moment, and because everything else that's going on in the world, totally ignored. Mm. But except by you. Except by the United Nations, who are wa- rather worried about the extent, because their terms of reference are not decided by the United Nations as they should be. Their terms of reference are decided by China itself. And this means that, you know, when do we fire, mm. when do we fan- defend our assets will be a Chinese decision. That is power projection. OK, that's all we have time for this week. Next week, I'm sure we will be talking much about that vote that's happening in Scotland today. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us on BF- at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.